You can't be afraid to demand that accountability from them because, again, it starts with your vision for the player. And I think you get your energy as a coach and you provide that energy to the player by the vision that you have. If you're waiting for the player to inspire you every day, you're not going to do this very long. You've got to inspire the player to be where he can be. And I think that carries right over into how they live their life. I think it carries over into their academics. I think it carries over into what they are as teammates. Because the best energy you can ever have is from what happens to you over a period of time because you are improving. Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former Georgia, Indiana, and Marquette head coach, where he reached the 2003 Final Four, Tom Crean. Coach Crean is here today to discuss accountability to one's talent, late game decisions, timeouts, and extending the game via quick twos. And we talk disruptive defenses and favorite set alignments during the always fun start, sub, or sit. This July, we're excited to be headed to Las Vegas as we're partnering with and attending Pure Sweat Basketball's Pro Scout School on July 11th and 12th. Hosted in the backdrop of the NBA Summer League, this event allows coaches to learn and interact with the NBA's top executives, coaches, agents, and scouts by the way of keynote speakers, interactive breakout sessions, and one of the most popular networking socials during the Summer League. Listeners of the podcast can save $125 off the ticket price by going to puresweatbasketball.com slash slapping glass. We'll see you in Vegas. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Tom Crean. Coach, thank you for taking the time for us. We're really excited to talk to you today. Well, I appreciate it. As I said to you off air, what you two do with Slapping Glass and what you do in the sense of asking questions, putting video out, creating talk and conversation and a resource of not only learning, not only teaching, but very, very importantly, how it's applied. You guys just have great basketball conversations that we all can sit and listen to and learn from and then watch the videos from. And you give the teaching points and you get people to give the teaching points, which I think is such a great thing. So thank you for everything that you guys do, too, for making coaches and teams and players better. Thank you, coach. Thank you, coach. Really appreciate that. We are excited to talk to you today about a bunch of stuff. And we want to dive in with something that you and I talked a little bit off air about, and that is accountability to one's talent and things that you talk about and teach your guys with being accountable to the talent that you're given. I think. Under the umbrella of everybody that's in your program, okay, they affect and impact your ability to win because they can affect and impact your ability to lose. And I don't care who it is. I mean, you have a responsibility as a coach and as a leader to get greatness out of everybody in your program, no matter who they are. And I think that accountability to talent starts in the recruiting process where you have to have a vision for the player. And it's not just about where they think they can go because they have a very general view a lot of times and their families may have a very general view. It's got to be much more specific and you've got to be able to formulate that as a coach. And I think one of the things that I like to do is ask players, okay, what are the four things 
that you want to achieve out of college. And it's not just, hey, I want to win, get a good education. No, no, not those things. What are the specifics? Like, what do you really want? And at some point in time in there, it's going to come down to how good they want to be, right? And then the question is asked, okay, if you were making the decision on college after you'd already made the decision, right? Like you went somewhere and it didn't work out and now you've got to make a change and here's what's most important to you. Okay, what are those things? And those things should really kind of coincide. But somewhere along the line, where they want to be as a player has got to be there. And I think that gives you the license to push, demand, drive, teach, inspire, whatever phrase you want to use to get the most out of people. And everybody can get better. And I think that the advantage of coaching, when you've had players that have gone on to the next level and have been successful with it, And you keep seeing why they're successful because they keep getting better. And Dwayne Wade is a great example of that. The improvements that he was making after 33, 34, 35 were incredible. Victor Aladipo just turned 30. I see the improvements he's making right now after coming off these really catastrophic injuries that he's had. I mean, I can go right on down the line and you can go on down the line with so many other players in other sports. So the bottom line is you've got to teach guys not only what they are capable of, how much they've got to continue to reach for that long after they leave you. And one of the more recent examples is this with Anthony Edwards when he came into our program a year early and he'd been extremely talented. He's a guy that came in a year early and still started his college career coming in as the number one prospect out of high school. Well, it took about three weeks, okay, of going through day by day in the summer and the workouts for him to understand, like, we're not fooling around with this. Like, you've got to get better. You can be as talented and as strong and as athletic as you are, but there's such room for you to grow and get better. And you can't be afraid to demand that accountability from them. I mean, you just can't because again, it starts with your vision for the player. And I think you get your energy as a coach and you provide that energy to the player by the vision that you have. If you're waiting for the player to inspire you every day, you're not going to do this very long. You've got to inspire the player to be where he can be. And I think that carries right over into how they live their life. I think it carries over into their academics. I think it carries over into what they are as teammates. Because the best energy you can ever have is from what happens to you over a period of time because you are improving. Coach, we've been talking about elite athletes who obviously have an inner drive. Mm -hmm. If we focus the conversation maybe on just your role players or the guys who aren't going to go pro, but are just as vital to your success. How does that accountability look and the process of teaching them this accountability? It's absolutely no different. I don't care if you're a walk-on. It's absolutely no different because hard to tell people that well over 90% of the NBA are people that are basically playing a role. And really, you could look at everybody. Sometimes people's roles are to be the star. They're to get 20-plus shots or to average 25 points a game. But the NBA, in all sports really, are full of people that have to fulfill a role. It's no different whether they're on your staff, whether they're on your support staff, or whether they're anywhere from 1 to 15 on your team. And I never wanted somebody leaving the program when they were done They may not have liked their minutes. They may not even have liked me. Okay, but I never wanted anybody walking out. And I tell the coaches this all the time. We never want anybody walking out of here thinking that they were cheated on the opportunity to get better. Now, playing time and where that goes and all those different things, that falls in line with that somewhere. There's no straight line to that. It's all over the place. 
But the straight line has got to be every day we're going to walk in and we're going to expect three things from you, okay, as a player. We're going to expect that you come in here mentally prepared to go. And we'll give a little bit of time, but not very much. I mean, you've got to come in. You don't get to get mentally prepared to practice when you're walking in the door at 2.58 and practice starts at 3. That's not mental preparation to me, right, unless you're coming from class. And if you're coming from somewhere else on campus, you still have a chance to get your mind around practice. You've got to come in with an energy and not a negative energy with well over 90% of communication being nonverbal. You don't get to come in and bring that body language and drag the rest of us down. No one's tolerating that. That's not how you get better. That's not going to pay your bills down the road. And it's certainly not going to make us better as a program now. And the last thing you've got to have, which is probably the hardest to get on a day-to-day basis, is to get guys to come in and understand they really have to compete. It's not enough just to come in and work hard, play hard, go hard. You've got to come in to compete. And a lot of times it's competing against yourself. It's competing against the drill. It's not just competing against else in your group or somebody else in a scrimmage. It's competing against yourself. And that's where that mental preparation and that energy come in. Well, I don't care, starter, if you're a freshman, a senior, or a walk-on that hardly plays. Those demands have got to be there. And it's the same with the staff. You can't have weak links on your staff. It doesn't matter if they're full-time coaches, graduate assistants, managers. And again, as hard as it is to get people to understand what that's all about, you've got to be tough enough as a coach mentally and care enough about the people that you're with mentally that you're willing to push them because it's coming from a place of care, love, and experience. It's not coming because you're manipulating them, using them, don't want them to be successful. And when people are young, or when they're new to the culture that you've tried to build, they'll fight that. And you've just got to be willing to overcome that fight and stay with it. Coach, a word you've used a couple of times now is demanding mm-hmm. and what it takes to demand you know, excellence from someone, no matter what their role is. I'm wondering what you've learned over the course of your career about the best ways to be demanding You know, from when you were a younger coach to now, maybe things that you've either changed your mind on on how to do that or things you've added to your toolkit. Oh, I've really changed. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that. And I think anytime a former player from Marquette, especially, and even the early days at Indiana, anytime they would come back, like they would just run the joke about what is this? Like Steve Novak used to come in and I changed one of my negative terms to, and I went with joker, right? I said, we're, I'd call somebody a joker. He would just laugh hysterically because he never got called a joker. He got called something else. And I think you grow as a coach because that accountability okay, to the talent of your team, you got to hold the same accountability to yourself as a coach. And if you're not interested in being a lifelong learner and lifelong doesn't mean I get better once in a while during a week, lifelong means you get better every day, right? Because there's so many different ways to learn and you've got to be able to discern and you've got to be able to adjust and be flexible and pick all these different things up and how they apply to you. But if a huge part of your passion is not getting better and learning, then you have no chance to make your players better. I do think what happens is you go through so many situations and it's really like this. It's like, you've got this yard, right? And these weeds are coming up and you think, well, you know what? They don't look very good with the weeds. So I'm just going to pull the weeds. You pull the weed and the grass looks better and everything's looks fine, but here come the weeds. They come back again and they keep growing back. And you think you're just going to keep pulling them and put a bandaid over it and hide it. No, the weeds are coming back. Well, I'm going to go get in the dirt a little bit. Maybe I can dig in the dirt a couple inches and get those weeds. No, you have no idea how far you have to dig down to get that weed root. You have no idea. You might be able just to come across and pull that weed every once in a while and get the most out of a player. You may be able to go a couple of inches into the dirt 
to get it negated where now you can help this player. There's going to be other players that you've got to keep digging and digging and digging because you know that you're trying to help them to be their very best. And most of those times don't come on the basketball court, but a lot of times they come from the basketball court because our relationships, like people say, well, it's all basketball. No, 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 no. It's not all basketball at all. It's all life learning because basketball is what brings most of us together, right? Basketball is what brings players and coaches and staff members and everybody together. But that's not the root of how you get better. The root of how you get better is you dive into people. You find out not only what makes them tick, what will make them better, what drives them, because they're going to be faced with dilemmas, with problems, with situations that you hope what they went through with you gave them a leg up on how to handle those things. You go across the seas to Europe right now. Okay. That's a whole different life for people. I've never done that. I don't know if I could. But I know I've had plenty of other players that had to go across, leave their family, go into a completely different culture and have to be able to not only survive, but to flourish, right? And it's the same thing when they go into different lines of work. Important thing you have to be able to do as a player and as a coach, you have to be able to self-correct. And so much of my coaching and so much of my belief in coaching is not only how you teach, not only how you get them to apply it but how you teach them and help them to learn how to self-correct because there's going to come a day when you're not going to be there and nobody's going to be there. And they have to be able to correct themselves, whether it's somewhere in the middle of the night or whether it's in a basketball game when they've just missed two shots in a row. You know, whatever it is, can they self-correct and help themselves get back to where they've got to be? Coach, just following up on what drives a player and as you mentioned that that weed example and really digging deep to know the internal motivation of each player, also how then it affects how you communicate with that player because I'm assuming you know they're motivated by different things and one way of communication or one theory doesn't apply to all. And so now if we kind of knowing that and then applying it back to the court, whether it's in a practice or a game, how do you speak to a group when you know that it's going to be interpreted differently and not have the same effect on everyone? Well, that's a great question. I say to the coaches a lot, less is more and more often. And I know I was guilty of this so many times and I still have it happen to me some because you get so much going in your mind and you want to get things across to your player and you have to continue to understand how they learn. So I'll say to the coaches, less is more and more often. Make one or two points, okay? And then come back and maybe make one of those points again with another point and then another point. Don't sit there and give them five, six, seven points in one sitting. And I think being in television for a year really helped me, guys, because if you make three points inside of a situation, that's probably too many. Being able to be an analyst in a game and being able to be at the table at halftime and pregame and stuff like that, and being able to wear those different hats in television really helped me. I mean, you've got to be concise with your words. You've got to be clear. You've got to have tremendous clarity in what you're trying to say. And it's not as much about the voice inflection. Sometimes it is. But it's much more about giving people something that they can hold on to and making sure the main point you want to give is the point they take away. In television, I know when I was at ESPN, they'd say this all the time. Repeat your best stuff more often, right? Come back and say your best stuff more often. And I'll be watching shows. And rarely am I sitting down where I can see a show hour after hour. But like you'll hear somebody come back, man, I just heard that. Well, there's a whole new group of people tuning in that didn't hear it, right? And so I think our own players are the same way. Just keep getting it across. And you know a couple of things. When they get tired of hearing it is when you know it's being registered. And when you hear it being said away from you, not only in the media, okay, not only when they say it in their own interviews, but when you hear it 
coming back from other coaches, other people in the program. Well, coach said this, now you know you're getting it across to them. And I think that's really, really important. You mix your message. Again, it's very unscripted. You might have a couple points that you want to make, but you've got to be able to be true to what they need. And you individualize your message. You don't teach guys that it's all about individuality, but you do individualize. And most importantly, I learned this from Tony LaRusso years ago. You personalize your message. So you individualize it for that person, but you personalize it, which is even more important, where they know they're getting something for them. And the trick is that you do it inside of a team concept that's going to make the team better because of the way that person personalized that message. Can you just give an example? Like, how would you personalize the message? I think it's especially when somebody is not playing well, right? I think visuals are really big. Obviously, film is big. Sometimes you can show them numbers. Sometimes you can show them a clip. But I think the most important part of personalizing is what they accept. So you have to learn over a period of time. And I'll give you a great example. We were in the Big Ten. Yogi Ferrell was our point guard. We had gone to Maui. We'd lost two out of three. Then we went to Duke, got beat by 20. Okay, the world's caving in. We've got people calling for my job that nobody thinks we're going to be any good. And I knew one of the problems that some of the coaches felt like, man, defense is our problem. I said, no, 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 no. We're way too slow on offense right now. We're holding the ball. It's way too slow. So I would tell Yogi, I said, we got to speed it up. We got to speed it up. Like you're at your best when we speed it up. Well, you know what? It really wasn't coming across. We took a day. We were playing Indiana, Purdue, Fort Wayne, and they're really good coach, John Kaufman. We were playing during the weekday. Okay. We had just won a game, but this is something I started doing later in coaching is I wouldn't just have a normal walk, right? Like it was not, Hey, we're going to go for an hour and do this. Some days I'd mix it up. We might be out there 20 minutes. Some days we might be out there an hour and 10. Some days we might be out there 10, but we'd be doing something. So we started in the film room and we were in there for probably 45 minutes. And it was all clips of us playing extremely slow. Like I was going to drill that, that we were playing slow. Because kids can think sometimes, well, you're just making a highlight tape. They always think you're trying to trick them. No, no, we're not trying to trick you. This is for real. We're slow right mm-hmm. now. And then we took about 20 clips of us playing at our best. When Yogi was younger, turning defense into offense. And we went out that night and played so well. We scored in the 90s. Yogi had a great game. And he said after the game, I had no idea I was playing that slow. He had to see it. It wasn't me telling him. It wasn't just our practices. He had to see it and he couldn't see it for one, two, three clips. It had to pierce him. And I think that's what you have to be able to do. And it's not negative. Pierce is not a negative word. Okay. I've never had my ears pierced. So I don't know. I'm sure it hurts <laughs> when you get your ear pierced, but you have to pierce players sometimes to the point where it reaches them to where they will do something about it. Because stubbornness is one of the worst traits and it's happening more and more right now. Stubbornness is one of the absolute worst traits that you can have because when you're overly stubborn, you're not real accepting of learning and you don't want to accept failure as something that you can get better from because you don't want to see failure. Leaders that don't ever want the problem to come across their desk and don't want to be told about the problem. They want to be told about what somebody did to fix it. I don't want to be around those leaders when the crisis hits. Because when the crisis hits now that your leadership is coming out, whether you want it to or not. And I think it's the same with players. So you got to pierce them before those crisis hits. I think to me, that's part of being demanding, but they know it's coming from a place of love because I always say this with players, we're not going to take anything from you as a player without giving you something better. So many times in coaching, when somebody's not able to do something that they want to do, okay, 
it's not no, it's not yet. And I think when you come from a not yet position as a coach and they buy that and they understand that you mean it and that you're going to work with them constantly to build their game, okay, not yet becomes something that they believe in. Like they believe there's a path for them. Hey, coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's sgpod at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, we want to move on the court with you now and discuss late game situations and decisions that a coach has to make in late game. And the one we want to start with is the decision to try and extend the game with twos versus maybe taking a quicker three to try and you know get the score a little bit closer, more manageable. And just your thoughts on that decision as we go down the stretch. I think in late game situations, when you're down, you don't know if you're going to win. But if you take a quick shot early, when you had a chance to get to the rim, to get fouled, to put pressure on the defense, not only to get to the foul line, but then to set your defense, you're taking your percentages down of being able to win the game. You really are. And being able to extend the game and being able to get players to understand how long the game is, is really, really hard. And I think one of the things that's happening now that all coaches have to work with their teams in practice, certainly if you're in recruiting, you have to look at it in recruiting. But I think it doesn't matter if you're coaching junior high, high school, college, or pro. You've got to work with your players constantly and get them to understand not only how long the game is, but how long their fight has got to be in the game. Because it is so easy when you get down to lose your will to keep fighting, not to lose that competitive spirit. And you may want to compete all you want, but you don't have a belief that you can win inside of the game. And I've seen this happen more and more. I've had teams as of late, we might be down 12 with eight minutes to go and they don't believe they can win. And I'm talking to friends of mine. I think it's happening more and more. And if people are listening to this podcast, I think they can probably look at some situations where that happened. And if you can't, okay, then you've got something special that the rest of us don't have. And I think you have got to be able to get players to understand the game is always giving you something, right? And it's not about hero ball. It's not about taking matters into your own hands. It's about each possession mattering. And the way it matters is to understand what it's giving you. And I think there is so much time inside of a minute, 45 seconds, 30 seconds to be able to come back and win. You know, one of my last games in Indiana, we were down nine with a minute 58 to go. We won the game in overtime. We won the Big Ten Championship at Michigan in 2013. 54 seconds, 55 seconds. I think we were down five. I know we were down at least five. I had three timeouts left. And I think as a coach, your job is to plan ahead with those timeouts because it's not only about having guys comfortable for the situation, but it's about having that timeout that you can get to to stop that clock when you couldn't get the foul to stop the clock. And we won the game. We came back. Michigan helped us by missing some free throws, but we won the game on the road, won the Big Ten Championship outright. Three timeouts left at 50-some-odd seconds. I went home with three timeouts. I said this off the air. One of my goals as a coach 
the average fan would think this is crazy, but one of my goals as a coach that was to always leave that game with a timeout in hand because I didn't want to blow timeouts that we might need to win a game. Because what happens more often than not at the end of a game, it becomes a CYA type of situation with the defense. And that's why the pressing teams have an advantage so many times. And so you have to have the ability to know where you're going to set that screen to create some movement in your offense in a full court situation. But more often than not, people don't want to foul. Well, they also don't want to give up an open three. So there's a little less help. And if there is help, there's more of that chance to drive that long closeout and get to the rim. And I think you see more often than not, people come down the floor wasting dribbles. And it's a known fact, and Fran Fraschilla has made it part of his mantra in coaching, that there is a second, okay, for every dribble that you take. Now, if you just dribble the ball on the side of your leg, and you're just dribbling the ball, not driving the ball out in front, well, that theory doesn't work. And at the same time, defensively, you want to turn the ball. Because I think every time you turn the ball in a full-court situation, you've just taken two seconds from the offense. And so the more that you can get the ball straight up, attack, get the screen, get the ghost, whatever you want to run, but attack that rim, okay, with force and be able to create something or read that the situation, the help is there and give it to the next guy. And if that's an open three, great. But to come down and think we've got to get a three against a switching defense, too many times too early, it's just a huge mistake. And you have to practice those situations time and time again so that your players get a comfort level with how long the game can be. You said something really interesting with your timeout philosophy and that if you can go home with them, you would. Mm -hmm. So I guess my follow-up is just kind of pulling out of the crunch time. What will make you call a timeout maybe in the second half? You know, what is it then that I want to burn a timeout here versus no, no, let them get through it. I want to save this one in case I need it. Well, if there's anything a minute and a half before the TV, okay, that's an automatic. Once it gets a minute before the TV, I got to play it out in my mind because as you know, the TVs are 16, 12, 8, and 4. So I'm trying to use the TV timeout as much as possible. But I think so many times something that will help you. And again, how quick can you get in the bonus? And there's probably no coach in the history of basketball that I think has done a greater job than Mike Krzyzewski over a period of years. And everybody spends time at this. I'm not trying to say he's the only one, but he's probably the one that I picked it up from the most of how important it is to get in that bonus early in the half. And the way the game would change for coach Krzyzewski when it got to five fouls in a half and how quick they would work to get that seventh. So you're trying to establish the quicker you can get in that bonus, because now when you're getting to the line, now you can make points and get them settled in without the timeout. You can tell when your team is discombobulated and they're starting to go off on their own or the communication isn't there. And so many times I see it from their feet. When guys get bouncy and their feet aren't down or they're jogging offensively, or their feet are not planted into that ground, right? And they're moving their feet and they're striking their feet. To me, it's like, okay, there's a confusion here, right? And that's not the only sign because sometimes you just look at their face and say, we're not getting this or we don't believe. But I think even when you're struggling, you can get down, you can run harder, you can cut harder, okay? You can get your feet planted and guard the ball. And when you don't see that, it's time to call a timeout. It really is. And to me, I hate it, but sometimes it has to be done. Now, if there's one player that you think is kind of lost in it, you might be able to make that sub. But more often than not, something happened. Okay, I'm seeing this more and more right now. The other team scored, and who are they looking to blame, right? You have players, because again, a lot of times, the players don't want any responsibility for the result when it's not going right. And they're looking for somebody to blame. And you got to get that stopped now. 
Because like you let that go a little bit longer and guys give it up on the other end and they're not locked in. Okay, those leads and you being behind can go from four to eight, from eight to 12, from eight to 16 like that. And you've got to be able to get that stopped and you've got to be able to read that as a coach and you've got to be able to trust your instincts. And again, the fans, as soon as somebody makes two shots in a row, they may want a timeout. Well, you know what? You've got to be able to play the game in your mind and know that this is probably coming down to be a tight game. I've got to have some timeouts at the end of the game. And I think it's a feel more than anything else. But I think every chance you get to stop the action because you got to the rim and got a foul, the more you can save not having to call a timeout. And then you want to make sure when you call that timeout that it's a plus four as much as possible for you, that you're not only going to score, but that your team is going to come back out and get that stop. The game is made up of so many four-point and six-point swings, right? A three and a three, a two and a two, especially in that timeout game. In the after-timeout game, is not only how you scored, it's what you did on the other end. I mean, that's as equally as important. And if it's a wash too many times, well, then you better be really good, okay, at certain things, free throw shooting, three-point shooting, things of that nature. You want to get that plus four win as much as you can, whether it's a TV timeout or whether it's the timeout that you call. Coach, I'd like to circle back to the extending the game, going to the rim versus shooting the three. And I'll preface this question with things you see in certain articles online or analytics or whatnot of when you maybe should shoot a three versus go for a two with how much time is left on the clock, all those sorts of things. I want to maybe give you an example and see what your thoughts are. Situation, maybe you're under 15 seconds, somewhere between 10 and 15 seconds, and you're down, say, four or five. Is there any difference in your thoughts on going to the rim versus trying to shoot a three as the clock gets closer to, say, under 10, where a three could put you into, if you're down four and you hit a three, then you're down to a one possession game after foul versus going to the rim. Do you think at all about when you might want to shoot that three to potentially cut it to a one possession game versus continuing to go to the rim? Oh, absolutely. It all comes down to the timeout you have left. And there's other situations. I mean, obviously, it's how the game is being played out, where you're at in the bonus, who you have on the floor. But to me, the rule of thumb starts with the timeout game and what you have left there. So 15 seconds down five, and we have at least one timeout, there is no question we're going to the rim. And I think but this is where we as coaches have to be really sharp. And I know I've made mistakes. I even made mistakes with this this year. When your team is coming down and you've got that timeout, if there's two timeouts, there's no debate. You've got to be able to call it. When they have the least bit of confusion or they're not on the attack or you see that somebody is sizing it up with the dribble. And I had this workout one time when we were in Maui, Anthony Edwards. I wanted to call timeout. I didn't hit a three. We win the game, right? But he was a rare talent with being able to do that. But I think more often than not, you've got to be able to look at it and not be afraid to call that timeout because two, three, whatever it is, the worst situation is a bad shot, really a shot turnover, basically what that's turning into. The turnover, that's an obvious one. That's bad. The bad shot is probably just as equally bad because you never gave your team a chance to score. So I think you have to really play that out in your mind. But 10 seconds to go down five with a timeout. If the ball's on the side, no question, we're going to the rim. If the ball's going length of the floor, we're probably going to run some type of flare, okay? And pin on one side and flare on the other side. Probably try to take a three in that situation. 15, no debate. 13, no debate. We're going to go to the rim with a timeout. And coach, the timeout, 
having that left for you as a coach, is that more so that you can set your defense after the make, or is that more so that you can foul, call a timeout to set up an offensive play, let's assume after a foul and some free throws? Why is that timeout so important to keep? Well, I think it's the pressure to get the ball inbound. And it always starts with this. It always starts with the five count. And again, I'm not a big believer in coming off the ball. I've done it both ways, but I'm a big believer in getting as much length as you can on the ball, right? And really extending all over that ball. So you're trying to get the five count. Obviously, then you're trying to get the deflection, which turns into a steal. Trying to get the trap. Very, very important that the team know who's got the arrow because you want that tie-up. And it's very important, I think, to tell the referee, all right, that you're going for the trap and the tie-up before the foul because sometimes they'll just assume that you're going to foul. And you've got to get it across to all three of them, right? You've got to make sure you make eye contact, verbalize with all three of them because the best ones will ask you. And it was funny, some of the guys that were doing the final four this year alone, when I look back at it, they were some of the best at asking, what are you going to do here? Whether you're on defense or offense, are you going to foul here, right? Because I rarely foul up three. So I think that steal, that trap, that tie-up, and then it becomes, are we going to foul on the first pass? Are we going to foul right across midcourt? Now, when you're down inside the seconds, you know, the 15 seconds and under and things like that, you got to foul right away if you don't get what you want. But now when you're sitting in that 25, 30 second range, you may not foul till you get that ball across midcourt because you're going to try to get the trap. You're going to try to force two to three passes before they get across midcourt that gives you that chance for the steal. Then you've got to be really, really good to be able to foul. I thought Roy Williams was as good as anybody that's done it at how to play late game basketball on when to foul, when not to foul coming from behind. And rarely ever did you see Roy waste a foul in the backcourt when he could foul in the front court, you know, with the time on the clock. We've had conversations about that in the past, and I think they spent a lot of time on that. And I think that's part of the whole Dean Smith situational basketball education that everybody that ever spent time with him got. And Larry Brown was a master at that. Look at what he had with Coach Smith. So I think you learn from other people and you apply it to what you do. And I think spending a lot of time on that is never wasted time as a coach. Coach, we've been going through scenarios, like you said, under the seconds, 15, 10 seconds, when would you look to start to extend the game? The biggest thing with that is to feel for how you're playing right now and how are you scoring? It's always about momentum, right? And momentum is always up for grabs inside of the game. I think it's big on understanding when the other team calls timeout, especially under a minute. And I've made mistakes early on. And Al McGuire actually did some of our games my first year, but he would watch the game. And he gave me a great lesson one time when we played Minnesota my first year as a head coach. I didn't foul early enough when Minnesota called a timeout and took the ball out. And he said, when they called timeout, okay, with all that time on the clock, you knew they were running it down to the end. That's where you got to extend the game early. It was an education for me. We lost the game, but it was an education for me. And I think minute and a half, we're still playing the game. But I think it really depends on how they're playing through their worst foul shooting. Okay, and that's where your staff comes in. How much is the worst foul shooter touching the ball? Now, it's easy if he's in the backcourt. But if you can get the poor foul shooter to touch the ball early, and I mean the guy that's in the 55 and under percent, right? 60 maybe, depending on what the team is like. But if you can get that ball touched early, you want your team conscious enough that we're going to foul at that point. But a minute and a half, I'm not sure I would do that in a down six game. Under a minute, there's no question. But I think once they call timeout, not only do you want to change your defense, but you have to look at the time and score of the game and you're not going to let them use the clock as their ally in that situation, even if that means you give up two points at the following. You mentioned your staff. And I think that the organization of information from your staff late games is obviously one of the most important things. So for you as a head coach, 
how did you want and how did you organize who was going to give you the information you needed? Because the timeout situation, the possession era, what you're going to run offensively, what they might do on offense, who had it and who was giving it to you so you could disseminate that to your players as quick as possible. Well, first off, as a head coach, I think it's this. And there's two big learning things for me in this. Jeff Van Gundy, a long time ago when I first became a head coach, said, you have to understand late game better than anybody on your staff. And I read a book called Turn Up the Wick by Frank Beamer. Beamer talked about all the changes in his book that he made when he needed to win. I do think what's most important with late game is this, responsibility. You can't be talking to five people at the end of a game. You can't be doing it. Now, you need everybody that's aware, but you've got to have not only the scout, okay, that has the game that understands it. You have to have somebody, whether somebody right behind your bench or another assistant, that is absolutely tracking the frequency of what's happening. And not only are they tracking the frequency of what's happening, what they're coming out of timeouts with, you got to have two people at its best that are helping you with what's going to happen at the end of the game. Now, there might be another person that's going to help you with what you're going to. But I always keep a late game book with me. People ask, you know, what's in your binder? What's in your folder? It's all the late game stuff. And I know our coaches have. But if I didn't write it out personally, if I didn't have that, I didn't feel good, right? Like I'm going to listen to my coach. There's no question about that. But I had to feel good about what was going to happen at the end of games. I had to have a comfort level with that. And that doesn't mean the coach isn't going to change it. But I think having two people that you can rely on that you do not have to filter anything from. I think the worst assistant coaches in our game are you have to filter what they're saying. When they don't understand who's on the floor, okay, what the time and score situation is, when people say things just to be heard or they say things just so they can get an attaboy for giving you some advice, no, 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 no. I don't want to filter what you're saying. Our job is to win the game. We'll sort all the rest of it out later. Yeah. No matter how bad it's going, our job is to win the game. Sounds simple. It's very complicated because people complicate it. No, this is what we need. So if you're standing there as a head coach and five different people are talking to you at the end of the game, I'm not talking about at the timeout. I'm talking about on the sideline, you know, as the game is going on. You've got to be able to discern those voices that you're listening to because you know they know exactly what we're trying to do in this situation. Coach, how do you practice these late game situations? How do you prepare your team for them? I think you've got to take those shots and drills, okay, that you want. I think you've got to practice. We're going to make sure we're getting anywhere from 8 to 15 minutes alone just on layups, okay? Getting to the rim, cuts. You know, there's going to be a lot of different things. I don't think you ever do just one thing. Right? I don't think, hey, we're just going to work on layups. I think you work on driving the ball or passing the ball or going through the contact or making multiple moves or getting to the other side of the rim, helping them understand the space that they need. You know, we always talk about one less dribble in the backcourt, but one more dribble at the rim. And it's amazing how many times guys shortcut their drive. We could do a whole segment on this where they shortcut their drive by picking the ball up too early or they don't get to the other side of the board. Now, we have a white line right down the middle of our floor, which obviously can be a help side, ball side line. But for me, it's attacking the white line. Like when you catch the ball on one side of the floor, especially on the baseline, you're trying to get across that white line to get to the other side of the board. So we'll do that with drop-offs in the alley. We'll do that with our drives. I think that helps build the late game. I think taking shots that you would get in a pick and pop situation, in a back cut, in a drop, in a backfield situation, those type of things. But then I think it has to be practiced. One of my favorite games to get it organically is to go 60-60, two minutes and 30 seconds, three minutes, 45 seconds, clock starts at 67. 
So they're playing, they're playing, and then the situation becomes organic from there. You know, it's one thing, hey, we're down 10, five minutes to go. Those are simple. But I think you've got to find segments in a game. And I think one of the best things you can do is you work on this closing your half and you work on this starting your half because you want to get things down to where you know how you want to start the game. Well, you got to close the half. you got to start the half and not only end the game. So you get them comfortable with the segments of the game. And the more experience you have in your team of them being with you, the better that they get at this. But I think, again, when you scrimmage, it's always important, not only with the time scoring the clock, What's the foul situation? I think it's really important to change up your teams, not go first five, second five. It's really important to put fouls on somebody so that they're talking that out. And then it's really, really important that you make sure. I never want it to be, I think it's lazy to go, hey, so-and-so, you're down four. You both got two timeouts. No, that's really how the game is going to go. You've got three timeouts. You've got one timeout. You change it up. Right. And the more that you can get your other team to feel that, hey, you know, he's cheating us or he's not giving us an advantage. Hey, welcome to playing on the road. Right. <laughs> You've got to learn. You're always trying to practice to get ready to face the best defenses. You're always trying to practice to get ready to face the most hostile environments, which usually means the best teams you have to put yourself and your team in situations that they have to get over that in a hurry. You know, they have to get over those mental hurdles that give them that built in excuse as to why they can't win. And one of my favorite games, too, is eight minutes to go in the game, like maybe 8.03, right? So the TV's going to come after eight. A team is up 17, and they have a bubble that they've got to shoot against. So you take your team that's going against the bubble, and you put the guys on that team that maybe aren't doing a great job of offensive rebound. Like, if they don't offensive rebound, they're not going to be able to run the clock back because the only way you can score is to get an offensive rebound. And if you get fouled, okay, well, you get a point for this. And then what we do is we take the bubble off in the last 30 seconds of the game. But the other team doesn't have the bubble and they're down 17. So you've got two TV timeouts coming. You give each team one or two timeouts, depending on how you want to do it. You create a couple foul situations, especially if it's not just five versus five. If it's maybe you have seven on a team and seven on the other team and you play the game out because it's a disadvantage. It's a mental warfare game. For you to not be able to see that ball go through the basket, and the only way you can get it is to grab that ball off the bubble. And then you put the guys on the team that has the basket, they may be the guys that aren't blocking out very well. So if you don't block out, you're going to lose the game because you're going to run out of time. And I love little games like that that mess with your team's psyche so that they have to overcome it so they're comfortable and again, the situations you get out of that are really organic, which is, I think, what situational basketball is. You want to script it in your practice, but you also want to have it as organic because that's what the game is. Coach, this has been amazing so far. We could probably keep going forever on this late game stuff. We want to move to a segment we call start, sub, or sit. And what we'll do is we'll give you three basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, sit one, and then we'll have a quick, fun little discussion from there. So, Coach, if you're ready, we'll dive in. On the hot seat. I've seen you do this. <laughs> this is where the nerves kick in. This is yeah. like being down eight with a minute to go and no timeouts. <laughs> yes. When you haven't had any reps at this either. So this yeah. is uh, no. the first one. No. All right, Coach. This first one has to do with set alignments that you feel are great for versatility, meaning alignments of sets that you can move chess pieces around. You can move one to three to four to five that can kind of mess with a team defensively. So which alignments, the start would be maybe your favorite. So start, sub, or sit, the horns alignment, 
a 1-4 alignment or a diamond alignment? 1-4 high or 1-4 low? 1-4 high. 1-4 high. All right. I would say, again, I would preface it by saying that this would probably change depending on where we were at in the course of the game. But I think as a universal one, I'll go with the horns action because there's so many different ways to move people inside of that. I would go then with the 1-4 high because you're going to get everybody lifted. Again, we want to utilize the corners so much. That's why I like the horns, especially for the cutting aspect out of there. But 1-4 high gets everybody lifted and you've got a chance to get the defenders to make more of a mistake. And then my sit would be the diamond action. Okay. Coach, you said you want to fill the corners and use the corners so much. Could you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, we want to use all 94 feet as much as possible. And I think one thing that we do, we've done this since Marquette, is we've always played with the NBA line down. And I think everybody thinks, you know, when they hear about the NBA line, well, no, it's just about the NBA shot. No, it's about the spacing. The NBA line is so valuable to get your spacing taught. And what we did, I learned this from Brett Brown the year that I was out, we put this in at Georgia. I'll keep it the rest of my coaching life is we use the four point line and we put it at 33 foot eight. I think Brett had it at 31. We went at 33 foot eight inches because again, it creates a spacing level for you. Now where the corner comes in, you're not going to get great distance in that situation in the corner. So it's not just about the corner three. For me, you got to earn the corner three. Like we're going to spend time shooting it. We're going to spend a lot of time shooting it in practice, but you've got to earn it because there's such a fast break waiting to happen as was said such a long time ago. What we want to do is we want to cut out of the corner and we want to be a threat to cut out of that bottom corner. And the corner means the corner. And when we cut, we want to even be lower. And so we want that utilization of not only for the spacing, for the shot and the drive, but for the cut. And I think anytime you can get that and you get that baseline cut, the rule of thumb is even or below, you cut over the top of them. Above you, you cut behind them. The closer they are to you, okay, the more that you set them up a one-two step to get behind them. And we always talk about cutting under the X. So we have the corner and we have the corner marked off, but then we have an X that we want to be able to cut under. Because I think the more that you can cut lower and just be just on that baseline side area there where you're almost running out of bounds the harder it is because anytime you can get the defense to have to turn their head or shoulder, you're going to be an advantage. So that's why the horns action can be such great utilization for your offense. One four is really good too, because it's going to lift people because we had such a new team this year. Literally we named our cuts. You know, we had our corner cut was an a cut because we call our corner cutting action Atlanta. That's where we got a lot of corner cuts from, you know, with this Atlanta action that we'd have. So we called it an a cut. We called our slot and deep wing cut a B cut for backfill because anytime we cut off that slot, we want to fill out of the corner. And then we called our top of the key cut a C cut for a clear cut. And we started clear cutting. We started C cutting more. So we would run all those different segments inside of our three on O, four on O, a lot of four on O in practice before we ever got to the five on. And again, it teaches them spacing. So it's not only the cut, it's the ability to finish the cut. And finishing the cut doesn't just mean I cut short to the three-point line. Finishing the cut means I cut above the NBA line so that I create that space. And well, it's the same thing out in that corner. Don't just cut. A short corner cutter is a guy that is not a three-point shooter. But the guy that can cut to that corner, okay, is opening up that lane for the next cutter for the drive. And we want those guys comfortable sprinting through to finish that cut. Staying on the horns alignment and looking at its versatility, why would you put a guard in the horn setup 
you know, and what actions would you look to run with the guard there? And then also, where would you put that big that you pulled out of that horns alignment? Which corner? It's all about the switching, knowing what they want to do with the switch. And look at the Spain action. Look how much that's screwed up everybody, right? When you've got a big setting the screen or and a guard lifting up or a big lifting up that can shoot and the guard setting the screen, you see more and more guard pick and rolls. I think anytime you can put the guards in situations that they are not overly comfortable with, you're going to be better. Your offensive team is built. When we take spacing and all those different things, there's three segments there's got to be, okay? How many ball reversals can you get that are creating movement? How many two-on-ones can you get when it comes to one guy guarding the ball in a help and recover situation inside of your offense? And how much can you make X4 and X5 help? Well, I think maybe the fourth one now, okay, when you can get four and X5 to have to be in a help situation where they're not as comfortable without on the perimeter, how much can you get the guards to have to defend that post up? The more you can put defenders in an uncomfortable situation, you don't need a lot of time to do it. Sometimes you only need a couple of seconds to get the bucket and get the advantage that you want. Coach, our last start subset for you, we're going to go to the defensive end of the ball. Okay. And it's playing against a team that executes really well in the half court and ways you can take them out of it or ways to disrupt their flow. So start sit in terms of what's your favorite way or what would be your number one option? Is it to press the point guard, pick him up full court, try to not allow him to center the ball and enter the play? Is it to extend the catch or deny the entry passes? Or is it just being physical on every screen? So whether it's you're going to push the screens out higher or it's just not easy for them to set any screen, you're very physical. I think to me, it's start, definitely get up and guard the guard. And I think you carry that over. And again, this is not the question, but you carry that over into somebody that gets hot. And when you know catch somebody, and not only a box and one, it looks like a box and one, but when you start no catch, and it's amazing how many times guys don't have an idea on what to do to get the ball back. Anytime somebody starts to deny us, we're going to get stuff going on the baseline because it's really, really hard to take somebody out of the game when they're running the baseline. Well, to me, I think when you can wear the point guard down, when you can bring fatigue to the game, when they come up to set the release screen to help them out, when you can switch it, that's the start for me. So when you can bring pressure to the guard, the sub would be for me, the busting up the entries. And that's again, where you might switch out the wide pin. You might switch out the pin down. You might switch out the chest cut, you know, the Iverson cut type of thing. Do something that's going to change up the entry for them, you know, where they can't trigger their offense based on option A. And especially when you can get them to go to the other side of the floor to start where they want. And maybe the sit part for me is because I just haven't had as many teams that were good at this is to be the real physical part with the screening. You'd ask Tom Izzo that question and he's going to go with the physical on the screens, right? Because they're so good at that over time. To me, I would turn that around and say, hey, we're going to switch those screens. So that's why I would stay busting up the entries. The physical part probably for me with the screens would be the sit part. Coach, you mentioned it on both your start and your sub is switching. How reluctant or willing are you to switch, even if it's maybe not like a preferred matchup, but the fact that you can maybe disrupt their offensive flow or take them out of the entry, it's like there's more benefit in doing that than putting a bad matchup somewhere else on the floor. All comes down to how well they cut. Now, you want your team to be fundamentally sound and touch and switch, right? Come together. But what happens is the more you switch sometimes, your team becomes passive aggressive. They have a comfort switch. And the team that can cut, like we practice against that with our GAs all the time because you're going to switch us. We're going to get a cut. And we're going to lift. Those two people involved in the switch are going to have to do two things. And I've been working on different things right now through film study and how to take even more advantage with the switch. Maybe cutting the man 
that spaces away. And there's the switch, not only spacing, but cutting right away and have it cleared outside because it's amazing what happens sometimes in a switch. When you switch off and you're not locked in, it's amazing how open the guy you switched on is unless you're switching into nine. So many of the times we used our switch game to switch and deny, especially in a pick and pop situation, especially with good shooters. So I think it comes down to me for that. But I think switching in general screws people up. And I think that's where they've got to be able to have force on the cut. They've got to be able to front the post or at least slip red, we call it. Full red is the full front, but a slip red is driving your arm and your top leg across their top leg, right? And just sitting on their leg. And getting, no matter who you are, comfortable with that at the elbow and inside of the post. So I love switching. And the more you have guys that are likable in that, switchable, I should say, the better you are. But I think you're doing a disservice to your ability to win if you don't have guards that are comfortable being able to switch out into the post and bigs that are comfortable in being able to guard the ball. And we spend a lot of time on that. By week two, end of week two, we started playing our four-on-four game where it was bigs versus guards. And I would recommend this to you guys and to anybody to try this. Take a half-court to three-quarter game, four-on-four, all right? You could do it three-on-three, but four-on-four is better. Take all your bigs versus all your guards. There's a score in every possession. There's a point for the D or a point for the O, depending on what happens, right? The turnover, the point goes to the defense, obviously, and the foul, the point goes to the offense. But there's no posting when you have that game, okay? It's all cutting. It's all movement. It's not just run and come on set some random pick and roll. You can ball screen, but you've got to start the game with driving and cutting. And you force your bigs to have to guard the ball. You force your guards to have to guard bigger people because what you're going to do is you're going to get random cuts, which turn into a post up. You can't just come down and set up camp in the post. That defeats the purpose of the game. Mm -hmm. And you play the game anywhere from 15 to 24 seconds, right? And the more you're at three-quarter court, and now you can switch possessions every five, every seven, or sometimes I'll play the game to 15, and the bigs are on defense for the entire score to 15 because it forces them to do what they're not comfortable with. I think you do your team a disservice, and you're shortchanging their career, and you're shortchanging your opportunity to win if you're not comfortable switching. It's like the coaches that don't want to play zone. Well, you know what? You got to have a zone to win sometime. I never wanted to be surrounded by coaches that were so fixed in their mindset that there's only one way to play. Because again, it goes back to what I said earlier. Momentum is always up for grabs and the game is always giving you something. And your job as a coach is to find out what that is and then trust it and figure out how to get it. Well, coach, that was great. You are off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for going through those with us. That was really fun. Um, so, Easy. It was basketball. You didn't give me the yeah, complicated. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We, we were told to ask you start, sub, or sit Caesars, Taco Bell, or Panda Express. I can handle that. That depends on the time <laughs> of year. Like right now, <laughs> right now it's Panda, uh, start, Little Caesars, sub, Taco Bell sit. But during the season, it's far and away Little Caesars start. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Taco Bell sub and express it basically because the panda wasn't near the arena. There you go. There you go. <laughs> that I could get to, but at night. So. Oh, love it. Good, good stuff. Well, coach, thank you once again. Before we got one more question for you before we wrap up, this was really fun. So thanks for the time yes. today. Thanks. No, I love it. I, I, and again, I love what you guys do. And I think it's just such a, I know it pumps me up. That's why I was a paid subscriber and will always be because it's one of the greatest resources 
that have come across in a long, long time. It's just fantastic. Wow. Thank you, Coach. Wow. Thank you. Really, really appreciate that. Coach, our last question we ask every guest here on the show is what's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? You guys fit that bill. Synergy fits that bill. Sports code fits that bill. I'm paying for sports code and synergy on my own right now. So <laughs> I see the value of that. My basketball answer is this hand pads, boxing, sparring hand pads, not boxing mitts, but hand pads. Because when we started going to the hand pads and the eat pads are great, the full body pads, the football pads are great, but the actual sparring mitt pads are so good that the GAs, the managers, they could utilize those in a big way. It helps players. They can hit them. There's real contact. Nobody's getting hurt. You're not drawing blood. The players may not like it, but it's a very, very good way to be physical. And then the other thing I'm going to say alongside of this are the cheap, synthetic, $1.99, 250 work gloves. You have somebody that their hands may not be as good or their mind set on their hands is not as good is really, really important. And I think as a coach, sometimes you see somebody with bad hands. I don't think you look and say they have bad hands. I think you got to check their wrist strength. You got to really look at where their wrist strength is because a lot of kids come in underdeveloped with their wrists and it's not their hands are bad. They just can't hold the ball right? Because their wrists aren't strong enough. They can't really catch the ball Hmm. because their wrists aren't strong enough. But that's another point. But having the hand pads, so we not only would put those hand pads on our big men, so we might go 10 minutes of gloves. The hand pads we would use every practice, no matter what. And the GAs and managers would use those. But the cheap synthetic gloves, we would use those. We might be 10 minutes on with the gloves and then 10 minutes off. And it's amazing the mindset that happens with a player when you put those gloves on. And what we started doing at Indiana is we put those gloves on our guards. So we started doing our driving and ball handling drills. I remember we barely beat Rutgers. The year we won our last Big Ten championship there in 16. James Blackman Jr. had gotten hurt. We barely beat Rutgers. We come back home. We're getting ready to go to Nebraska. We brought those work gloves out and I didn't put them on everybody. I didn't put them on Yogi Ferrell. By the end of the workout, Yogi Ferrell was ticked off because he didn't have the work gloves on him. Because he saw the players with these work gloves who hated it and were losing the ball when the body pads and the hand mitts were being swatted at them. Okay. And they had to really, really focus not only on the ball. We don't use the gloves to shoot the ball. We shoot jump shots with the ball. We use them to make layups and drive the ball. Because I think you're defeating the purpose if you use it to shoot them. But to finish through contact, finish with strength, building that wrist and hand strength that you've got to have. That became a really, really good weapon for us to help guys mentally and physically get better in practice. And it was really a cheap investment in both parts. Coach, great stuff. You also mentioned beforehand that you've taken a couple of coaching trips in your career that were really impactful for you. Could we close with potentially some of the learnings from one of those trips? Well, I've had so many. And if anybody wants to read about John Wertheim, great writer with Sports Illustrated, and he's on 60 Minutes, a great guy. Grew up in Bloomington, and I got to know him when I was in Indiana. He wanted to do, we really wanted to do a book in my year out. And my wife and I decided we didn't want to do a book, but he did a really long story. And if anybody ever wants to see it, we really chronicled a lot of the trips that I made there. But one that I made a long, long time ago, and I was thinking about it this past weekend with the playoffs going on. Tom Izzo, when I was with Tom Izzo, we went out to Houston. Jim Boylan, who was with the Rockets at the time, coached in over 300 playoff games, three NBA championships, obviously was the coach of the Chicago Bulls. And he was in a very new role with the Rockets. Well, we went out, they were playing the Jazz. We went out 
for four nights, they had Barkley, they had Akeem, they had Clyde Drexler, Utah had Carl Malone, they had John Stockton. I'll never forget that the great Eddie Johnson was at Houston. He hit a bomb on a Sunday to win a game late in the game. We went out there for four days. We saw two games. We saw walkthroughs. We saw practice. We'd get there early. We basically didn't leave the arena other than to go to the Galleria, I think, one time and go back to the hotel. We had four different lunch or dinners where Rudy Tomjanovich gave his time and went with Jim and myself and Tom to eat with us. It was unbelievable. I mean, just unbelievable. I met the great Gordy Chiesa out there. Jerry Sloan was coaching. I knew I was getting to do something really special at that point in time, but I had no idea how special. And the friendships, the basketball that I learned, the behind the scenes that I learned, watching Gordy Chiesa work with players before the game was one of the great things I got to do. I'll never forget in between, I think it was games three and four. I could be wrong on the games, but Rudy Tomjanovich came into the film room where Jim was working and we were sitting there when Jim was breaking down film. And he wanted film of how John Stockton had defended a pick and roll from three years earlier. He remembered a game where he had done something different on a pick and roll, a different part of the pick and roll. And he wanted to see, because Stockton wasn't guarding it at that point that way. I think it was a chase over. He wanted to see how he was chasing over the pick, if I remember correctly. Jim had to go back three years <laughs> to get video from Jim. And this is Hall of Famers now, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> And it was like, it was unbelievable to me that depth of knowledge, but the depth of preparation that you would go to. It's moments like that, that register with you as a coach that are just so incredible. I mean, just so incredible. And the last one I'll give you is this, this, I reminded me of this when he was retiring. Mike Bray was somebody I got to meet when I was in the eighth grade. My coach at Elma college, he'd been an assistant at central Michigan, Ralph Pym was his name. And before that he was at Northwestern state, Louisiana, and he'd recruited two guys, Mike Bray, and a guy named Jim Hoops. Jim played for the Athletes in Action. Mike Bray, obviously, is Mike Bray. Well, Mike had transferred. Mike's coaching now. After being at DeMatha, Mike is coaching at Duke. And I went for a summer. I was working a lot of camps in the summer. And Mike invited me to stay with him. And Duke was getting ready to go overseas. And they were going to take one of those summer tours. They had Quinn Snyder. They had Danny Ferry. But I got to go watch three practices at Duke. And I'll never forget. Coach Krzyzewski, the first day, I'm up weighing the bleachers. And lo and behold, Gordy Chiesa is there watching that day. <laughs> I didn't know Gordy yet. He was a bigger-than-life figure to me. It wasn't like we became friends yet at that point. The next day I went to practice, I got to sit down closer to the floor. The third day, I got to sit closer to the floor and come into the locker room for a meeting. It was like every day Coach Krzyzewski let me do a little bit more at the age of 19. And it was such a mental thing for me on what you do for coaches. And Mike Krzyzewski was already winning championships now. I mean, he was already big, obviously, right? But every day, I just sat in there, took notes, minding my own business. Every day, he allowed me more room to see in that program. And I never forgot that. I never forgot that. And it's stories like that, you know, when the all-time winningest coach and what he is is a legend. It's stories like that, those personal stories to me that register with me. He gave me something. I'm 19. You know, I'm not even coaching at Elma College yet, right? <laughs> he gave me something that no one had ever given. And it was a great memory. Bobby Cremens was like that, worked one of my first camps at Georgia Tech. He drove me to the airport because he was flying to go to D.C. to go see Alonzo Mourning. He drove two of us to the airport. I'm 20 years of age, working camp. And he buys both myself and another guy ice cream and makes sure we get to our plane. This is Bobby Cremens. Right. Mm -hmm. And to make sure we both get to our plane before he flies off to D.C. to see a summer league game. The legends are that way for a reason, because they treat people 
in a way that most people never find out about. But I'm sure I'm not the only one that was treated like that. And it's a great lesson for every one of us as coaches. God put us on this earth to treat everybody with respect because he created every one of us the same. We've all got different circumstances and lives, okay? But he put out every one of us the same. And our job is to never, ever think we're better than other people. And I've had the great pleasure of being able to learn that from other coaches. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass.